Good morning. I want to greet you in Jesus' name. Appreciate those amens. Are you sure about it? Okay. I had told you earlier that you got three weeks to read the book of Jonah, and now you see me here. So uh, the Lord has His ways, and uh, I appreciate them. Find a peace in uh, following what the Lord has for us. If you remember back in uh, the 1st of January, had a message on the minor prophets, and it ended up that we had a message about the minor prophets before we got into the minor prophets. And uh, we left a part hanging there. Somebody remember what part we left hanging on that message? Some unanswered question. You remember that? Did you find an answer? Don't remember the question. What is a prophet today? Very good. Was the question a little different to anyone else? In that sense, we're going to deviate instead of going into Jonah. I've titled the message this morning, Just Plain Minister. Twofold purpose. One is a relief of mine of that of answering the question that Caleb mentioned that I left hanging in that first message. And then secondly, the comment that I that we've made that in looking forward to uh, seeking a minister amongst us, what the qualifications are of a minister. So before you punch out and say, well, I'm not going to be a minister, I don't need to hear about the qualifications. These are qualifications that I believe should be for every Christian and uh, should be within our, within our realm of uh, goals for our life. First part of the message is answering that question of how did the minor prophets translate into the ministers of today? Now, somebody remember any of the key um, uh, points or something that you remember about that? Now, to me, that, that message and the way the Lord gave it to me answered a lifelong question for me. Uh, does anybody remember that at all or any aspect of, of how we related to the prophets in the Old Testament? More specifically, what I'm referring to, what was the purpose of the prophets in the Old Testament? Do you remember that? Pardon? To bear God's message. That's right. To bear God's message. Was there any others? To bring people back to God. That's right. Israelite was bound to follow idols and all sorts of other things. Any others? God had given the promise to Abraham that he would have a people or nation that would follow him, that would serve him, a nation of kings and priests and holy nation. And uh, that's in Exodus 19. That's not to Abraham. That's actually to the children of Israel in Exodus 19. But God put the prophets in place to keep that. Those things that you said are exactly accurate. And God put the prophets in place to 
keep the people following him. Who was the king that went astray that it doesn't seem like he had a prophet to guide him? Solomon. Seems like Solomon didn't have a prophet, whereas the others, they did. Some tried and were successful, like David and Nathan. And then we have Isaiah and and, uh, others that were killed, were sawn asunder, and uh, were not successful. And yet I'm curious as to how many of the people turned to God because of it. Because you have like Hezekiah that instituted the Passover again, and people came by the thousands to observe the Passover again, at least hundreds to observe the Passover for it. And so to me, it was a revelation that... uh, the prophets were put there to bring the people back to God, to, to steer them in the right direction, to preserve a holy and a nation before God. How does that translate to the New Testament? And uh, I want to look at that just a little bit. Uh, Paul had mentioned his testimony, Hebrews chapter 1, and uh, that kind of started all of this. And uh, in answer of that, but uh, there's more. We'll come to that just a little bit later. There's more than that. Now between Malachi, the book of Malachi, and the book of Matthew, or when John the Baptist came, and I didn't check again, but it's somewhere between three and 400 years, the quietness. No prophets, just a quiet. And uh, they had gone, the Israelites had gone into captivity, and yet God had brought some back. And so there were hundreds of years of quietness, no prophet in the land. And here comes John the Baptist preaching. What was John the Baptist's message? You remember? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Matthew chapter 3, verse 2, saying, Repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. We could make a message all of its own of what the kingdom of heaven is, but the repent. Then Jesus came right after him, and what was his message? Repent. Chapter 4, verse 17. From that time, Jesus began to preach and to say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So they were starting the ministry, bringing life to the Christian community again, to the godly community, to the Jews. Repent. Turn to God. And uh, there is a sense that we could go dig deep into it, but there's a sense that I appreciate that Jesus, in a sense... Um, establish ministry. Establish ministers. He chose the disciples, the twelve. He sent out the twelve in Matthew chapter 10. But he also made another effort to send out the, uh, send out the word by sending out the seventy. Luke chapter 10. Seventy men that went out, preached the gospel, taught what needed to be taught, told the people what it was that the Messiah was here. And uh, I remember several years ago when I found a list that had been made by someone early on, um, today it would be thousands of years ago, um, thinking around 300 or 500 if I remember right after death, somebody sat down and said, now these are who the 70 were. And that's interesting. We're not going to base any doctrine on that, but they said these are the 70. And many of them were ended up being the uh, being the uh, ministers and pastors and leaders of the New Testament church in Acts. Now, there again, it was somebody that made that list. Jesus didn't give us that list. 
But it is interesting to note, and we do know that God chose, that Jesus chose 70. We do know that he used 70 to preach the gospel, and so we know that they were there, and we know that they somehow responded to that. And uh, of those 70 names that they put together, there was a few that were not faithful, that didn't go on to serve God. And uh, it uh, shows us the humanity of mankind that we could do. So there is something that Jesus, in a sense, abolished the priesthood and established the ministry in its stead. Now something that I found very interesting, turn to Matthew chapter 9, and uh, to me this has made me think, especially here as a congregation, we've been considering missions, we've been considering considering missionary support, and uh, here all of a sudden the Lord said, here, take this, think about this one. And in verse 37 of Matthew chapter 9, it says, Then saith he unto his disciples, The harvest truly is plenteous, but the labors are few. Now we know that. That's a fact. We understand it. We know that there should be more people proclaiming the gospel. What are we going to do about it? Are we going to go to Igo? Are we going to go halfway across the world? Are we going to keep going to the mission in Elkhart? Are we going to start passing out tracts? What are we going to do about it? What does Jesus tell us to do? I thought that uh, always I thought, well, I'm going to be sensitive when God tells me to move. And the the term that I often use is that when my cloud will move, I'll move. Like the Israelites. And I think the cloud, presently, my cloud is here. Maybe yours is moving. Be sensitive to that. And I, I, I always thought about it that way. But the Lord, in a sense, dropped a bomb within me in verse 38 when he says, Pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest that he will send forth labors into his harvest. What are we supposed to do? Pray that we go? Pray that God will send. And it's not just here. It's in in, uh, uh, Luke 10. Pray that God will send. Wesley, last year in El Salvador, as he was contemplating what to do this coming year, they'd ask him, do you want to come back Do you should, uh, to uh, teach at the deaf school? What, uh, what uh, and he asked the question, what would he do? What should he do? And he, he contemplated coming, staying here. Um, and um, sorry, but Wesley's like, like me. He has all sorts of things that he thinks about that he could do, and he got stuck in the same problem that I have, I guess. You know, you dream and think about everything you could be. And uh, the Lord didn't tell him. Just didn't seem that the Lord told him that he was supposed to go back to El Salvador. And the Lord didn't really tell him that he was supposed to stay here either. What he did tell him was, be faithful wherever you are at. And in a series of events, God did call him back to El Salvador. But this verse 38, what what I guess as the Lord showed me this, is that I often think that, you know what, I need to be preparing myself for that great work that he has for me, or that I should be going and struggling. 
But here it says, Pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest, that he will send forth laborers into his harvest. That God do the sending. That God do the sending. And then the going is easy. Because we struggle with the going often. That he would send forth. And I think there's two things to learn from this passage. One is that it is the duty of the church of Christians to pray for labors. It's our duty to pray that God would send. It's our duty to pray. You know, we were looking for the answer, verse 37. The harvest truly is great, but the labors are few. And we think, well, well, well where shall I go, Lord? It's pray that the Lord would send. And maybe the thing that struck me the most is the second thing that here it says that the Lord holds exclusive right to send us forth. The Lord is the one that sends. The Lord is the one that guides us to go. The Lord is the one that helps us to know when we should go. And I I wrote down here, secondly, that the Christian ministry is subject to the call of the Lord. So often we think it's whether we're available or not. And it's not really that. It's the call of the Lord. It's the Lord calling. And we pray that the Lord would call. And that we're so in tune with Him that we'll just go wherever He calls. Sometimes we struggle with knowing the will of the Lord. And I'm afraid sometimes it's because we don't want to do it. And if we ask the Lord of the harvest that He would send. And so when He calls us to go, it'll be... A comfort to know that we're going because the Lord is doing, because the Lord is doing it. Recently, I thought about um, <clears throat> our family. If you would have been here in church in 1974, when um, our family, being Dad's family, being called to go to El Salvador to uh, serve there at the children's home. It was all the wrong time for our family, if you really think about it. I was 11 years old. I had a 13-year-old sister and a 16-year-old sister, and I think 17 or 18. Take three young, four young people at that age to a mission field amongst heathens? We went. We're here to talk about it. The Lord used... Us because of someone praying that we would be sent. I guess I'll share your dad's testimony. In the 70s, dad was in construction. When we left in 1974, nobody was really interested in taking on the construction business. And uh, so uh, it just, just died. Finished the jobs that were pending. Construction just died. If you're familiar with the middle 70s, that was when people said, this is what I want. says, well, you want to know what it costs? No, no, I don't know what I want to know what it costs. Just build it. This is the way I want it. This is the way to build it. And great profits were made in construction in the 70s. And I've heard Dad say more than once that the riches that he got from being at a children's home in El Salvador was greater than what he would have gained while he worked here. And so, when God calls, and when we pray that God would send, the Lord knows what he's doing, even though at times it seems like it's totally the wrong timing, or it's the wrong time of life, or it's some all other things. I think that's when the Lord can actually use us, when we commit all sorts of things to him. 
What does that have to do with the transition from prophets to ministers, the Old Testament prophets to New Testament ministers? I believe here, instead of God choosing those prophets, as he did in the Old Testament, faithful men that preached his word, it's now the responsibility of the church that God would, that we would pray that God would send ministers into the world, into areas, into our own church, into a ministry right here. Turn to Hebrews chapter 1. often envision places of need across the ocean and all sorts of things, but you know there are needs right here amongst us to serve as well and to turn toward God. Here is a verse that maybe would help us explain the scenario of the Old Testament prophets transition to the New Testament. Here in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1, it says, God, who at sundry or at other times and in divers or different manners, ways, Spoke in time past unto the fathers by the prophets. Hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds. Now Hebrews was written probably within the next 30 or 40 years after Jesus went back to heaven by the resurrection. And so we have here that he says, that has in these last days spoken unto us by his Son. And I believe that's why God wrote these down in the New Testament for us to read and understand and implement into our lives, write it upon our hearts, and to live by. And then it kind of almost seems like it hesitates there when it says that hath in these last times. So so he gives us the transition from God speaking by the prophets, then spoke by Jesus. And I wondered, well, where did it actually come into ministers? Where did it go into the next step? Where did it actually go on? And then he actually picks up the theme of Jesus, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. And he goes on to talk about Jesus and how he was able to take the place of those prophets and how he brought us salvation. And I kept reading and I kept reading, wondering, where's he going to come back to ministers again? I think in chapter 2, verse 9, but we see Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor that he by the grace of God should taste death for every man. For it became him... For whom are all things, and by whom are all things, in bringing many souls unto glory, to make the captain of our salvation perfect through suffering? For both he that sanctifieth, and they who are sanctified, are all of one. For which cause he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will declare thy name unto my brethren, in the midst of the church will I sing praise unto thee. And again I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children which God hath given me. For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had power of death, that is the devil. Goes on to talk about Jesus again. But I believe here in verse 10 and verse 11, he now brings the church into communion with Jesus where he says... It became him 
for whom are all things and by whom are all things in bringing many sons into glory, bringing all people to glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through suffering. So he's bringing godly, or I'm going to call them Christians, into glory. Into such extent that look at verse 11, both he that sanctifieth, Jesus, and they who are sanctified, Christians, are all of one, for which cause he is not ashamed to call them brethren. He calls us brethren. He calls us we are like him. We have the same ministry that he does. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That may be a little bit obscure there, but I think that what I, what, what happened in those verses is that he started referring to us with Jesus. And he again, as we mentioned in the next verses, goes on to talk about Jesus. But look at verse 12 12 of chapter 3. Take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God, but exhort or preach one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. For we are partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast unto the end. While it is said today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts as in the provocation. So I believe there he's telling us that we need to minister daily, exhort one another daily while it is called today. And that's why I believe that he instituted a church, the group that is supposed to pray that that he would send forth, that he would send forth laborers into his harvest, the Lord of the harvest. He's talking about the group that should pray that the Lord of Harvest should send. And we see hidden within Hebrews here, as he talks about Jesus as a high priest, taking the place of those prophets and placing within the authority of the church to choose within amongst themselves. Let's go to chapter 6, verse 10. For God is not unrighteous to forget your work and labor of love. Obviously talking about people that work for him. It says, not unrighteous to forget your lurk and labor of love, which ye have showed toward his name, in that ye have ministered to the saints and do minister. And we desire that every one of you do show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope unto the end, that ye be not slothful, but followers of them who through faith and patience inherit the promise. For when God made promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no greater, he swore by himself, saying, Surely blessing I will bless thee, and multiplying I will multiply thee. And so after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. For men verily swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is to them an end of all strife. Wherein God willing more abundantly to show unto the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel confirmed it by an oath. That by two immutable things in which it was impossible for to God to lie, that we might have strong consolation, we have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope set before us, which hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which entereth into that within the veil, whither the forerunner for us entered, even Jesus, made an high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So he's telling us that Jesus fulfilled that promise like Melchizedek did to Abraham. And in that, he's telling us that we have the um, carrying on, in verse 14, Surely blessing I will bless thee, and multiplying I will multiply thee, which is the Abrahamic covenant that we talked about when we talked about what the prophets were doing. 
And so we have the same responsibility as a body that God has chosen to carry forth and to keep his children faithful, even as the prophets of the Old Testament did. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is the way that Jesus would have said it. And it's as we look at Hebrews and as we study it, we see it woven through that Jesus is the high priest and that we are those that carry on his work as under priests or as under as ministers. As we think about that. And so I believe that it should be sealed in our mind that God is the one who we should pray to that he would send forth laborers into his harvest. Lest we struggle, lest we fight with the call, we understand that it's God that's the one that calls us. As we look at qualifications of a minister, I turn to uh, doctrines of the Bible. And uh, so if you, after today or today, this afternoon, want to look at these qualifications and want to see them some more, turn to doctrines of the Bible, page 333, and it talks about the ministry. And I thought, well, that's kind of repetitive, just going down the list as as uh, Daniel Kaufman did and as the book was written and those that edited it as they approved these 20 qualifications of a minister. And yet I thought, that's how God wants it to be. God wants it to be repetitive. God wants it to be something that we can build on. God wants it to be something in Scripture that we can work with. Christian minister is a servant. The der- derivation of the word minister makes it in its prime, this its primary meaning. He is a servant in the truest and fullest sense of the word. In this, he but follows the example of his Lord and Master, who came not to be ministered unto, but to minister. Thus the service of the gospel ministry was exalted to the highest possible degree. Now listen to this one. It is the most important, the most vital, the most essential, the most responsible, the most exalted calling within the province of humanity. It is the one calling on earth that is established, fostered, and controlled directly by the Lord himself. The representatives of the ministry are called, qualified, supported, and finally rewarded by the Lord. The place given the ministry of the gospel in the scripture shows that its purpose has twofold conditions of service. Subservient in nature. Subservient meaning helpful. Being there to help. Being there to do things for others. Number two is authoritative in application. Under the first condition, the minister serves under the direct leadership of Christ, the head of the church. Under the second, he is placed in authority directly, directing the work to some extent through others and placed under weighty responsibility. Turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 3. I'm going to say, as I said in the beginning, that often we, before you punch out, or often we think, well, this is not only he's talking about ministers, it doesn't really mean us. Verse 1 of chapter 3 of 1 Timothy, it says, This is a true saying, If a man desire the office of a bishop, he desireth a good work. I have still to understand that verse. But then it says in verse 2, A bishop then must be blameless, a husband of one wife, vigilant, sober, of good behavior, given to hospitality, apt to teach. And he goes on giving a lot of qualifications for a bishop. We think, oh, well, what about the minister? Look at verse 8. Likewise, must the deacons be grave, not double-tongued, not given to much wine, not greedy of filthy lucre. And he goes on to talk about the deacon. And so it's something that should be for 
all the ministry, all these guidelines, all these things that he gives us, qualifications that he gives us, and uh, tells us what we should be. But in verse 15, But if I tarry long, that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifested in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up into the glory. And then in verse chapter 4, The Spirit speaketh expressly that in the latter times shall some depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and to doctrines of devils. And he goes on to talk about what they expose. And I believe what we should believe, what we should look at is verse 13. Let's actually go back one to verse 12. Let no man despise thy youth. You boys, you say, well, I'm too young. I shouldn't have to say anything. Let no man despise thy youth, but be thou an example in thy youth. Of believers in word and conversation and charity and spirit and faith and purity, till I come, give attendance to reading, to exhortation, to doctrine. Neglect not the gift that is in thee, which was given thee by prophecy, with the laying on of the hands of the presbytery. Meditate upon these things. Give thyself wholly to them, that thy profiting may appear to all. Take heed unto thyself and unto the doctrine. Continue in them, for in doing this thou shalt both save thyself. And them that hear thee. I know it was written to Timothy, but I like to see these words as saying that these qualifications need to be for all of us. Need to be those that are garnished, those that are fruits that are helped to grow within the uh, church. Minister of, as a servant in the James 1, don't need to turn to these. James 1, he's called a servant. In 1 Corinthians 3, a laborer. In 2 Corinthians 1, a helper. Titus 1, a steward. In Acts 1, in Revelation 11, he's called a witness. Minister has authority. 2 Corinthians 5, he's called an ambassador. Acts 20, an overseer. Ephesians 4, a pastor. 1 Timothy 5, a ruler. 1 Titus 1, Titus 1, a bishop. And in 1 Timothy 5, an elder. And so, as we anticipate looking at these qualities, qualifications of the ministry, that we think about these in two ways. One is, as I mentioned, we look forward to looking at at uh, the Lord choosing amongst us a uh, a minister to help. But in the second sense, that we look at these qualifications and implement them into our own lives. There are many scriptures that we could go to and look at, and I've chosen not to do that this morning, but more go through it and uh, mention them for you to think about. And as I mentioned, they're in the doctrines of the Bible if you want to continue to research them and look at them in more depth. Chief aim of a minister, two things. By the preaching of the word, chief aim of the ministry is to bring men to Christ and to build them up in Christ. It is the perpetuation of the ministry of Christ begun by himself while on earth that this is accomplished by the preaching of the word, by propagation of the church. Okay, and I've been talking about it, and those of you that are keeping notes, you say, when's he going to get to it? Well, if you put down 1 to 20, there are 20 qualifications. Number one, the filling of the Holy Spirit. Luke 4, Acts 1, Acts 2, it talks about that. Filling of the Holy Spirit. Be a person that we know has the Holy Spirit um, and lives by direction of the Holy Spirit. 
There's one comment in here that I would like to read. It says, even though the other qualifications may not be so strikingly apparent with the endowment of the Holy Spirit and a diligent application toward the development of the other requisites, he will be a successful minister. So even though the other things might not be so apparent, what is essential is that he has and lives by the guidance of the Holy Spirit. Second, is a blameless life. And we could look at this one in 1 Timothy chapter 3. We saw that. I think we actually read it or mentioned it. But the second one is a blameless life. It says a bishop then must be blameless, but we're going to translate it as well as a minister and deacon or any person within the congregation. God wants a blameless character within his ministry. Number three, an influential reputation. Now, when he says influential, I believe that it means that his reputation is a good one. An honest report, could we say, it says in Acts chapter 6. Good name is rather to be chosen than great riches. People soon understand what your goal is in life. Even the heathen understand that. Unless our testimony be marred amongst those that are around us. And that would actually be in verse 7. Moreover, he must have a good report of them which are without, lest he fall into reproach in the snare of the devil. So we need, minister needs to have a good reputation. Number four, he needs to be humble. Successful ministers of the past were possessed of a wholesome degree of gospel humility. We think of Moses, we think of John. Moses, what was, what was Moses known? When you think of Moses, he has a title. What is he called? The meekest man. And yet he led those thousands, hundreds of thousands of people through the wilderness. Then we have John the Baptist. Uh, Jesus said, among them that are born of women, there hath not risen a greater than John the Baptist. But then he goes on to make a comment that at least in the kingdom of heaven. How can that be? If we follow the Lord in humility... That's how that is. Number five is unselfishness. An intimate companion to humility is unselfishness. Looks for the good of others. Willing to give of himself. Let the Christian minister learn from the master the lesson of unselfishness. He came not to serve himself, but to serve others. That is something that needs to be with discretion. Something that needs to be handled willingly. Something that needs to be handled not at the sacrifice of his own family and children. Because it says in verse, uh, if you're still at First Timothy, it says, One that ruleth well his own house, having his children in subjection with all gravity. For if a man know not how to rule his own house, how shall he take care of the church of God? So unselfishness in helping others, but others includes his own house as well. So as demands come that God would give us wisdom, to know which demand to follow. Sometimes we have to give up the better for the good, or the better for the best, or the best for the better, however that may be. And God will definitely, I believe, give you wisdom as you do that. Number six is patience. Let patience have a perfect work as a wholesome advice. Patience and cool-headedness go a long way in adjusting difficulties and winning a point for the cause. Let patience have a perfect work in the ministry. Takes patience. Lord's cooked me to tort task for this one. And uh, I often want to do something real quick. And the Lord says, no, let's wait a while. 
I'll do my work and you watch it happen. Second Corinthians six would be a six four would be a good for that. Or first Timothy three, if we were still there, verse three, not given to wine, no striker, no greedy of filthy lucre, but patient, not a brawler, not covetous. Number seven, he's steadfast. Steadfast isn't the same as as uh, as stubborn. Steadfast or firmness is loyalty to the right. Stubbornness could be um, can be wrong. Steadfastness focuses on what is right and wants to do what is right. And he firmly stands on the word of God and what God has given us. There is a difference between stubbornness and um, steadfastness. That was number seven. Number eight needs to be sweet-tempered, not sweet, not soon angry. That's in Titus chapter one, verse seven, where he says that he's not soon angry. So he needs to be a sweet potato, like some people say, a sweet tater, sweet-tempered. A leader who cannot control his own temper certainly is unable to control others. Pray for a sweet temper. Number nine, not self-willed. Stubbornness is not akin to steadfastness, is what it says here. But the one is a blind determination to not yield to any influence that crosses his path. And there is a case that, I don't know, did it happen here? Maybe Steve can tell me whether it happened here or not. But uh, there was a church that had an issue that they were discussing. And like we normally do, we present the issue and then we ask counsel of each of you. And there was an old man that couldn't hear as they came to ask him, he says, what's your opinion? What do you think about it? He says, I couldn't hear what I said, but I'm against it. That's stubbornness. That's stubbornness. He doesn't even know what he's stubborn about. He says, I didn't hear what it was, but he was against it. And so that shows an attitude. So number nine means not self-willed. When considering men for the ministry, beware of the self-willed brother. Be one that is easily understands and listens and uh, um, one that is faithful adherence to the Bible and what the Bible says. Number 10, sobriety, that he be sober. Frivolity, frivolity, lightness, and boisterous levity are not qualities to make the work of a ministry, minister effectual. Sober. I uh, didn't think about it, but lately I was reading about modern-day ministry, and there's actually a movement among some ministers that once in a while you got to drop in a, a bad word so that people know you're human, so people understand that you know you really mean something. I don't agree with that one. I do not agree with that one. It needs to be sober. We need to watch our speech. We need to be careful what we say. Number 11, he needs to be vigilant, a watchman on the walls of Zion. Verse 2, it says, uh, vigilant. It actually uses that exact, exact word. Now, I know that you probably didn't use that word within the last week, but you did, note, did say, no, we have to be careful. We have to watch what's happening. That's vigilant. He must be wide awake, always alert. He must be alive to happenings all about him and his flock. He needs a characteristic for self-improvement and for the real service of the flock. A sleepy, careless, unconcerned ministry allows the enemy to enter the fold and scatter the flock. Watch thou in all things is the Bible advice for a young minister. He's careful, he's sensitive to what he knows and what he sees. This is good advice. 
And uh, I, am, I am amazed at how some things come with experience. How we notice certain things. And uh, um, how certain things come out to us that we just don't feel right. Because in the past they haven't been felt right. And I know when I go look at a roof that leaks... You know, I look at it and I see, well, you look at it from the top and you wonder, where's the leak? And then I've discovered, really, don't laugh at this, but it helps to look at the bottom of the roof, too. By experience, that the water does come through and you can tell where a leak comes. Almost. Because water can travel and then it comes in through. So you need to know also that when you see a drip on the ceiling right here, lest you go right above it and fit the patch, that it might be the ridge because it follows down and then it comes through. And so experience helps us to understand some things. And that is the reason that we need to be vigilant. Watch. See what happens. I remember the client that we were trying to fix a leak for, and he says, well, let me go get a hose and we'll try it. And I said, Whoa, that would be a good idea, wouldn't it? We're looking for a leak. Let's spray water on it on the outside, and as we go up the roof, it'll start leaking. We know where it starts. So experience does help us. Number 12, that he's studious. We read, give attendance to reading in verse 13 of uh, 1 Timothy 4. Give attendance to reading. And uh, lately I was reading a certain author, and he said, when you read books... Be careful that you read old books along with your new books. And I thought, what does he mean? Well, there's modern trends of thought that are coming our way that tell us all sorts of things, like ministers should use bad words. But we should also read older books. They might have been going through the same thing, but very likely they were going through something different. And as the, as the scenes of the world change... And his comment was that you should read new books, but you should also read old books interspersed with the new books, lest you become too far off the curve on one side. That was number 12. Did you get that one? Studious. Number 13, sound in the faith. Soundness of a member's faith should be thoroughly tested and approved, for he is considered eligible for the ministry. Ministers who have held points in doctrine not in harmony with the word or the orthodox faith of the church have made shipwreck of their own usefulness and carried others down with themselves. Just as an expert contractor would reject an unsound piece of timber and not allow its going into the building where heavy strain is required, so the church should jealously guard against placing men in the ministry where so much of weal or woe, weal being happiness or woe depends, or weal would be success, success more adequately, depends on the position taken by the leader. And so, sound in the faith, somebody that is uh, true, somebody that is shown that he um, is exactly that, sound in the faith. Number 14, not a novice. Verse 6 says, not a novice, lest being lifted up with pride. Not somebody that's brand new. Not somebody that has just, just been converted, but has some time to study the Bible and to um, become used to it. Does that mean we always wait till they're 60 and 70 years old? Probably not. But I believe the best place for a minister to make his mistakes are at home, in his home church. Because we know him. And we have, in a sense, more forgiveness for our home and our family 
and the people of our family, our brothers and sisters, than we do for others. And so I believe that it's important that a, min- that a church has its own ministry and has those with whom they understand how they walk and how they've been. So not a novice. Number 15, free from unstable matrimonial relations. That's a long word, isn't it? Good marriage. Write that down, boys. Good marriage. That's easy. Okay? The minister's wife figures largely in his success or failure. And consequently, the wheel, and there he uses that word again. I had to look at it. Look it up. Wheel or woe of the congregation. The prosperity or woe of the congregation over which he is set. So, uh, just a good marriage. Number 16, the gift of teaching. Knowledge and the possession of facts alone do not make a teacher. The power to teach is a gift, an endowment, something that the Lord gives us. Um, so the gift of teaching, verse seven, number 17, executive ability or able to lead. That's easier to write, able to lead. Um, response, since the minister is responsible for the execution of God's order in the church. Verse 4 and 5, one that ruleth well his own house. And uh, so one that would be able to, how shall he take care of the church of God? And so you children have a ministry to you, your parents. You have a reputation to of your parents. You uh, show up on your parents. And yet, I'll be the first to say that the Lord is the one that understands wayward children. If we read in, Ephesians, in Isaiah chapter 1, number 18, separate from the world. He says, separate from worldly entanglements, but separate from the world, or not worldly. Um, Careful where he puts, says, coveting worldly power, greedy of filthy lucre, entanglements with the affairs of this life, or disqualifications carefully noted by the inspired writer. Secular affairs have their place, even in the life and activities of ministers. And Paul emphasizes the fact that he made his own living by secular labor and helped others to do the same. Honest toil of brain and brawn is commendable and helpful for the minister, but he must keep himself free from business and social entanglements of a worldly nature. He must set the riches of God's grace above the riches of the world. So he is separate from the world. Number 19, devotion to calling. He's devoted to be spend and be spent. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, willing to be used to do what it takes to um, fulfill the calling. Number 20, a living example. Example is stronger than precept. Actions speak louder than words. Somebody said, your actions speak so loud I can't hear what you're saying. So people read our lives. They see what? It says, um, an eloquent orator, an expert logician, may move his audience wondrously for a half hour while he is dispensing to them the truth fired with brilliant eloquence. But unless his life corresponds with his preaching, he is preaching a silent, though powerful sermon for the rest of the day that will be the undoing of both him and his work. The world reads the preacher more than it does the Bible, is a saying that has been demonstrated time and again. It is a life that counts in the end. So... uh, um, those are qualifications that all of us should work on to be consistent, to be loving of each other, willing to serve. After we have done all, we have used our best intelligence and wisdom in selecting men for the ministry. Let it be remembered that this is the Lord's work, that the Lord qualifies and calls for the ministry, that our part is only to be used as he directs. Pray that the Lord of harvest, that he would send forth laborers 
becomes meaningful in this. As I uh, was looking at uh, this and again looking at the definition of it, I just went back to some of the basics. And uh, you wonder, well, what are the basics? And uh, we have a little book called the Minister's Manual. And what that actually is, is it just wrote down. Somebody wrote down some of the things and how we do it. And, you know, it's just come times when we want to sit down and think, how do we do it? You know, it's like the man that had a long beard and he went to bed and, and, I mean, he slept every night. And somebody asked him, well, do you sleep with your beard above the covers or under the covers? And so that night when he went to bed, he said he put his beard above the covers and that didn't feel right. And he put it under the covers and that didn't feel right. And finally he said, wife, how do I sleep? You know, some things we do so common that we forget how it, how it, the normal is. And so we have a little book that writes down some things that this is, this is how we've done it. So God has given us an intuition. He's given us a thing to do. And so regardless of how you sleep and you think that it's uncomfortable either way, you know, sometimes we need to go back and see what is actually happening. And I'd like to read the definition that it says, the concept of the Christian church, the church. We believe that the church is the body of Christ, composed of all those who, through repentance toward God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, have been born again and were baptized by one spirit into one body, and that it is her divinely appointed mission to preach the gospel to every creature teaching obedience to all his commandments. That's the first paragraph, plus about 10 or 12 references that go after that. It's the church is the body of Christ, composed of all those who through repentance toward God, faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, have been born again and were baptized by one spirit into one body. And that it is her divinely appointed mission to preach the gospel to every creature, teaching obedient to all his commandments. It is refreshing to read that and to see the definition of that. As I looked at all of this, and as I read that, I came to the realization, and, and uh, our Sunday school lesson, I think, kind of talked about this, and this is probably why I said what I did. But I wrote down this saying that the church is vitalizing and liberating Christians to walk close to God, where the devil wants us to feel that he's binding us. The devil wants to draw a picture of restriction and, and confinement. You're confined within this congregation and you can't do anything. Whereas the church is actually a place of vitalizing and liberating. And you say, but you have all sorts of these guidelines. Do this, do this, and don't do this, and don't do this. That's what's so liberating about it. I just choose to follow. But the devil wants to draw the picture of that we have this cage and we can't get out of the cage. If you're going to call it a cage, I don't want to get out of it. We find peace in understanding that we're going to be where God wants us to be in our whole life. And that can be a joy. That can be a, a, a real joy. Some uh, years ago, I was looking for a used car. And uh, I had just made up my mind that, that I would not buy a red car. 
Wasn't going to buy a red car. You would be amazed at what wonderful deals there were on red cars. Oh, look at this one. I mean, it's it's low price, low miles, low you. I mean, no rust. You know what I found comforting? When I come to a car and I looked and it's always red, I look next to it. It wasn't worth wasting my time. Because I made a choice. I wasn't going to drive a bright red car. It was liberating. But the devil wants to take those things and he wants to turn them around and say, You know what? You'd really look snazzy driving a red car. So the devil today wants to often turn things around. Friday night, we heard a message. And and, uh, if you noticed in this writing, it says that they have been born again and were baptized. And today the people say, accept Christ. And I think that's a message all of its own. It's in in the pot, I guess, uh, mellowing. But being born again talks of a struggle of being changed from one world to the other. Accepting Christ is, I can live like I am, God comes in, I continue as I was. Or it can lend to that thought, okay? If you're going to come and say you accepted Christ and you're a Christian now, that may be okay. But I see the difference in the term and how the world wants to lighten all of this. And so, lest we think that the church is restrictive and uh, confining, Look at it as vitalizing and liberating so that you can walk close to God. You can concentrate on your fellowship with God. And uh, that could go on and on. So people, many people say we concentrate on this and that and the other when actually it might be the opposite. Turn to Hebrews chapter 2. Closing verse, my theme verse for the message today. Let's read verse 11 together. Hebrews 2, verse 11. For he that sanctifieth, and they who are sanctified, are all of one, for which cause he is not ashamed to call them brother. Okay, now that you're there, let's do it again. Let's read it all together. For both he that sanctifieth, and they who are sanctified, are all of one, for which cause he is not ashamed to call them brother. Let's go in the strength of that, that the Lord isn't called, that isn't ashamed to call us brethren. As we think about the ministry, as we think about the church, as we think about our salvation, let's thank the Lord that he's not ashamed to call us brethren. Let's not be the ones either that make the Lord ashamed. He's not ashamed of us. Let's not be ashamed of him. Let's kneel for prayer. Our Heavenly Father, this morning we thank and praise you for the plan that you have for Christianity, for humanity, for your nation on the earth, that you chose ministers to to work in that kingdom. And Lord, you've ordained some to the ministry to preach, you've ordained some to the ministry of supporting and growing and helping and building the church. You've taken all your children and ordained them to a work that you have given them. And Lord, help us to understand that we pray that you would send us forth. Lord, forgive us where we've sweated and toiled and worried about how that we can go forth. Lord, we pray that you would send forth those that you've chosen. Prepare them today, get them ready, and Lord, that we might see how we can send them forth to preach your gospel, whether it's to the streets of Napanee or whether it's halfway around the world. Lord, that you would help us to understand what you've taught us this morning. 
We pray that you would send forth laborers into your work, whether it's a minister here in Maple Lawn or whether it's some other work that you have for any of us. And so, Lord, thank you for the comfort that comes when we commit our life to you. We thank you for the comfort that comes when we can just say, that's what I have chosen, to follow you, and that doesn't bother me. And so, Lord, we pray that you would help us to be faithful, serve you faithfully, walk close to you, and that we might be ready when you come back. And we look forward to going home. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.